He's got two tour-level victories. He's a five-time Bassmaster Classic qualifier. And this week, Drew Benton joins us on... I'm Bob Cobb from the Bassmaster. Welcome to Mercer. Here we go again, friends, family, freeloaders, fishing freaks. Welcome to another edition, episode, whatever you want to refer to it as, of Mercer, the Awkwardly Honest Fishing Podcast. And um, thanks for joining me again. And this week is a big freaking week. I mean, maybe not for all of you. But I think for a big group of us, I mean, I've openly talked. This was never my plan to do this podcast. Um, but when I get into something, I go all in. And um, boy, so do you guys. If you look down somewhere below me, if you're listening on YouTube, we had 100,000 YouTube subscribers. When we started this show, we had 35,000 now over a hundred over a hundred thousand by this point um, when this airs so I think it's time I mean we have not cowbelled in a very very long time on this show and um, a lot of people do their talking with their mouth you guys did your talking with just subscribing and supporting um everybody that has done everything with this channel and trust me we have poured our heart and soul into it and i say our because it's not just me it's my wife it's uh the guys at vantage point everybody that's tirelessly working so whether you tune into this whether you tune into fyi the fishing news show we do every monday some of the tips we do some of the long form shows we do or some of the shorts which i mean are personally one of my favorite things because i get to swim with the fishes um thank you thank you um and if you're not part of that hundred thousand hey now's your chance jump on board um looks like this is going to be a thing it's growing more and more every day and man i just can't thank you guys enough because literally you don't have to like you don't have to subscribe to watch youtube content to watch streaming content but you guys choose to and you have no idea how much that means to me and in turn to all of our partners, sponsors, and everybody that have been behind this show from the very, very start. So thank you, each and every one of you. Um, wow. Wow. Now I feel like, you know, before I was like, well, nobody's watching this thing. And now as we've grown more and more, I feel more pressure to uh, deliver. <laughs> um and I, and I have um, delivery uh, problems, I guess. I don't know. I digress. Um, got a good one this week. Um, Drew Benton. I mean, it's been a hard guy to kind of narrow down time-wise. We've been flopping back and forth here, but we are going to really make this happen. And uh, Drew is having an incredible year. I mean, look out. If you look on the Progressive Bassmaster Angler of the Year leaderboard, you will see Drew Benton in fifth place with three events left to go. Um, it's awesome to see how dialed in he is right now. And there's been times in the past where he's been more spotty. But, I mean, 
I mean, he's a five-time classic qualifier. He's got a great career. And I think he's one of the quieter guys. So you just don't hear about him a lot. But, um, or as much, I shouldn't say that. You do hear about Drew Benton a lot. I mean, he's won two tour-level events. and But what I'm saying is, is because he's quiet, I think he's one of those guys that kind of flies under the radar. Let me know if I'm wrong. I mean, let me know in the comments, and right, wrong. I mean... You guys always do let me know whether I'm right or wrong, but um, how can something so right be wrong? Let's bring him in right now. Uh, Drew Benton. Drew Benton, I thank you very much for doing this, and um, you're a little high maintenance. It's taken us a few back and forth to get this ironed out. Are you always like that? I am. Or you know, I'm. this is the time of year where I'm trying to get all my deer fed, everything ready for deer season, which – you know, we end our elite season in August and then deer season starts in September. So I kind of get got to get all my ducks in a row. So I'm back and forth between, you know, my farm in Blakely where I manage, you know, a few thousand acres up there for deer hunting. And then, you know, we actually live down here in Panama City. So it's about a two hour commute back and forth. And then, you know, you throw four kids in the mix and yeah, I could be a little bit high maintenance, uh, especially here lately. Well, talk to me about that, you know, like, because stereotypically everything you've gone through in the last year, you know what I mean? This season on paper, it makes it for a bad season for a lot of people. You know what I mean? They'd say there's a lot of distractions. You got married, you got a lot going on in your life. How have you been able to focus with all that crap going on? Well, I think you almost kind of got to back up. Before I got married, I went through a terrible divorce. Yeah. It's no it's no lie. You know, last year towards the end of my season um, was not my best showing. And you could tell that something was going on in my life. And, thing, you know, we had a conversation the other day. Things happen the way they're supposed to happen. And or people might say, you know, things happen for a reason. Yeah. And I finally got my life back in order. And once you get everything going in the right direction, things start to fall into place a lot easier. And I think this season so far has been a result directly because of that. I'm in a, a better place, you know, at home and on the road, a lot more, um, I guess, support. So um, I'm in a lot better place than I've ever been. Yeah, I mean, it definitely shows in the results. Do you pay attention to the results, like where you're sitting? Are you one of those guys who's like, I don't even want to know what place I'm in? No, I mean, I pay attention. I do. It's because you never want to fall too far out of contention. And we've got three events left, and I think I'm, uh, I think I'm fifth. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So I'm fifth. Um, I don't know how many points back, but I think I'm around ninety to hundred points back with three events. That's a pretty substantial amount, but. You know, you know as well as I do, anything can happen in the sport. And one person bomb, and I have a top ten, and I'm right back. I make that deficit up. So it's uh, it's definitely something I keep my eye on, and it's something that every angler they'd be lying if they didn't say, hey, I you know, I, I check in on it from time to time because it's just such a big um, career goal for all of us. So I mean, I'd be lying if I said I did. Do you think the people that say that they don't are lying? They're lying. They're lying. Really? Everybody does. Yeah, it's just it's one of those things that you gauge your season by. I mean, obviously, we all want to make the classic, and that's yeah. the number one goal for all of us. So, you know, once you've you're 
you know, comfortably above that cut line, the next, you know, low, oh, I won't say low hanging fruit, but the next goal is AOI. And you want to see where you're at and see if it's attainable. And going into the last three events, it's still, you know, we still got a shot. We kind of shot ourselves in the foot a little bit at Pickwick. Um, I can kind of attribute that some to, you know, just having a bad boat number. There's X number of places. And when you're boat 88 first day and you don't get in a good rotation, it kind of puts you behind the eight ball. Um, and I was fishing some of the same areas, some some of the guys who actually made the top 10 were in. And whenever you get in that position, you're just, you got to play the card you're dealt. But um, I still feel good about it. I mean, not necessarily going up north because, you know, I'm kind of, you know, I'm a Southern guy, obviously, and we're going up there to fish for smallmouth. But, you know, Southern guys have done well. I mean, you look at like, um, let's see, who was it? Uh, Atkins. Atkins. Yeah. yeah. What do you finish, like second? Second. And yeah. also top three, the open up there, too. Yeah. Like, so, I mean, you definitely figure he's got that end of it figured out. Right, right. It, you know, guys like us can go up there and have success. Um, and that's just what it's going to take for me to stay in it. Do you, do you do anything specifically or have you done anything? I mean, I always find it weird where, you know, there's Southern guys who just come up there. And I think because smallmouth are so easy to catch in certain situations, you know what I mean? It, it's not a question of not getting a limit most times, but you might as well not have a limit if they don't weigh the right amount because you're going to finish in the exact same spot. Do you, have you done things to, to sure up kind of your smallmouth game? I think for me, it's just not overcomplicated. I mean, yeah. I think uh, early on in my career and when I, you know, don't do as well up there, it's I try to do too much. And uh, smallmouth are just pretty much really simple creatures. I mean, honestly, they just swim around and eat because they only have a certain amount of time to feed. You know, they've got their spawn. And then basically their whole life is to feed until it's winter, until it's too cold for them to feed as much. So um, it's just a matter of keeping your bait where they're living, you know, where, where whether it's shallow or, or deep. You know, sometimes we're at St. Lawrence and they're, you know, really deep, but the last few times they've been shallow and you've got to just stay in the right zones and, and keep it simple like that. Same thing with Champlain. You know, I struggled the first, first day at Champlain last year because I was fishing, you know, for largemouth instead of, you know, staying out there where the, you know, smallmouth were more plentiful and easier to catch. And, you know, once I got in that depth range that the smallmouth were feeding on those LY, it was just very easy. You just run around and seen them on active target and caught, picked them off, you know, one by one. And that's just the, the type mindset you got to have. If you're not getting bit and you're on a smallmouth fishery, you're doing something bad wrong. That's the truth. I mean, and I think there's a lot of people that try to wait them out and do things like, you know, they know this is an area that has them. But I mean, you need to you need to keep chasing hot fish. Is that just from experience of the number of trips that you've had up north by this point? Absolutely. Yeah, I've I've, I've learned a little bit each time I go. Um, And I mean, as a fisherman, you know, at this level, you have to learn. And I've learned a little bit of Pickwick. You know, that's a southern body of water. But you know, more specifically with smallmouth, I've learned something about a smallmouth every time I've gone. And, you know, the, from, you know, the basic stuff, when I first went up north, I didn't realize that they behaved opposite of like a largemouth. On a cloudy day, they get down on the bottom. And, and on a sunny day, they get up in the water column and feed. It's total opposite largemouth. But, you know, you just, 
kind of evolve into a better smallmouth fisherman the more times you go up there and the more scenarios you see and you just take home just a little bit more each time. You said you you try not to overcomplicate it. Was there a time that you you totally way overthought it, the smallmouth thing? Yeah, I mean, I so like when you go to a largemouth fishery, I feel like you have fish shallow that live shallow their whole life and stay shallow. Then you have fish that move out like on the ledges like they did at Pickwick. And you kind of got to sample both. And I would try to do that or take that approach to smallmouth fishing. And I don't necessarily believe that's the case. I think uh, you could do all your damage in one depth zone or or doing one thing for the most part, the smallmouth, because they kind of do all their – they're bidding at one time. Like they'll all go and spawn around the same time and they all start moving around the same time. And, and I feel like, like I said, again, if you're not getting bit, you're doing something wrong. You either need to go deeper or shallower. You just find that happy medium to where you're getting the most bites. And and that's where you're going to find most of the smallmouth. And it's just, you know, just knowing something simple like that, it causes you to uh, not overthink it as much. Talk to me about Pickwick because you said, you know, I had a bad boat number, get bad rotation. And I always start to, I mean, I kind of joke about the rotation thing being the new swinging for the fences because guys weigh in and they'll be like, yeah, everything was right. My rotation was off. But in a Pickwick event, mm-hmm. I think it means even more so because rotation's got more to do with not when you're hitting the spot. It's when you're hitting the spot that you actually get to fish the spot. Do you find competing in an event like that where you know, uh, you know, I might only get to fish 20% of the stuff that I want to fish. Do you find that frustrating? Yeah, it really is. And it seems like when you have a place to go is when you get the worst boat number. And whenever you like it, whenever you like have something golden or a big bed fish or whatever, it's when you're draw 60 or 70 or whatever, but that's just the way it is. Um, for, for guys who don't know, um, our system is, it, we're on like a four tournament rotation. So if you are in the first flight in this tournament for the next three tournaments, you're going to be in the second, third or fourth. And then after those four events, we rotate. So everybody's kind of on the, an even playing field. So it's nothing, it's just something we have to deal with, but yeah, I blasted off at Pickwick and I had three places in mind that I wanted to start and I was boat 88 and went by the first one. There's three boats on it. Um, one of the guys made a top 10, went by the second one. There was a couple boats on it, rode all the way. Uh, I believe it was like 30 something miles up to the Noxious Trace Bridge. And Brian Schmidt was on my, my best place. And I even turned my motor off and talked to him. I said, Hey man, I ain't going to fish here with you. It's too small of a spot, but I'll be back later in the day. And, uh, I ran around for probably the better part of 40 minutes before I saw a place with one, one guy on it was Jamie Hartman. I pulled up and said, Hey, you mind if I fish here with you for a little bit? And then I jumped in the rotation with Polnick and Pipkins and caught one. And then at that point, it's just where you can fit in and, um, you know, scrounged around and caught a, a decent limit. Um, I ran back up to where Schmidt had been fishing and he wasn't there and I caught two of my, my better fish off of it. And then we talked at weigh-in, and he's like, man, that's where I caught all my fish. And so, you know, you're kind of in a bad position at that point. So yeah. so here's, here's what people don't understand, and it's kind of, in my opinion, an unwritten rule ethics kind of deal. He's in the top, what, 
I don't remember where he was at. Top 10 for sure. Yeah. He was like top six. And I was in like 20-something. Can I start on that hole in the morning? I feel wrong about doing it, but honestly, I should have. I mean, yeah. well, um, it's just one of those deals where I gave it to him and I said, hey, man, I'm going to let you start there. I'm not going to mess with you. I'm going to start somewhere else. And and uh, I said, but if I need to borrow a couple, I might come in there. And he said, come on. So that's just one of the things that people don't realize that we work out, you know, on the sidelines fishing. And, um, you know, it's just I got a short run in the stick in this deal. Because because if you went to the letter of the law, I mean, Trip Weldon used to always say that's why we reverse the field. I mean, because yeah. day two, especially since you saw him day one, you know what I mean? It makes it just so much, I would think, simpler because you saw him. You made He made sure you, he knows you were coming there. Mm -hmm. So why did you make that decision? Why did you choose well, to be the good guy? Has, has love softened you? It, it, no, it always comes back. You know, there'll be a time where, you know, I'm sitting in the top five. And somebody rolls up on me on day two where I caught all mine. I'm going to tell them to get out of there. You know, that's just the way it is. And I feel I'm old school. I feel that's the way it should be. Um, you know, we're all out there trying to make a living, but at the same time, there's got to be a, le a level of respect there. And I, I think it's always kind of been an unwritten rule. And I've kind of always went by it. Yeah. I had, I had Pat Schlopper on the podcast last week and he actually said it was, and it was refreshing to hear. He's like, I, I didn't know how guys played out there. He said, you know, I, I, you know, it's his second season on the elite series. He's like, I've just never been to an event where a lot of people think it's okay to pull up right beside you and, and fish. And he said, he just wasn't aggressive enough in certain situations. And he allowed people to be too aggressive to him. Was that a learning curve for you when you started on the elite series or at FLW? Yeah, it was. I, I generally, as a rule of thumb, I'll pull up and I don't just pull up and just start bombing in there. I'll pull up and I'll ask the guy, hey, is it going to bother you if I fish here with you? Or you know, if, I, if I fish on the end of this point here, is it going to you know mess you up or whatever? I'll talk about it. I don't pull up and just go to fishing. And that's the really the name of the game. And everybody, well, I won't say everybody. I will say for the most part, because uh, I'll say this. Me and Jamie Hartman were sharing a spot, uh -huh. and the local pulls up, and he was just like, hey, man, I'm glad to see you guys aren't just cussing each other out, fighting out here. And and, uh, and we, we just told him, you know, we're just both trying to make a living. And uh, he says, I like to see this. And Jamie says, well, it's on a person-to-person -person basis. <laughs> so yeah. It's definitely – it's a lot of give and take. I mean, if you pull up to a guy and say, you know, you mind if I share this spot? And they say, yes, I mind. Well, then – he needs to realize he does not pull up on me, you know, ever. <laughs> I mean, it's a give and take. I mean, that's just the way we look at it. Now, in, in every spot's different. You might be sitting cast into a place the size of the front deck of your boat. You're not going to be able to share that with anybody, obviously. But if it's a big enough spot and, you know, you're later in the day, later in the week, perhaps. I mean, yeah, we, we try to work together best we can because at the end of the day, we're providing for our families. and That's the only way. What are you going to do? Sit out there where there's no fish? Yeah. Around? I mean, so we all get it for the most part. Well, and the, I mean, I've always looked at it like the, you, you can be loyal to friendship and whatever, but you also have to be loyal to your family. And you also have to be loyal to every logo on your shirt that, but the, I mean, at the end of the year, you can't turn to them and be like, well, you know what? I just had a bad rotation all year. They don't want to hear that. Um, so no, no, it, I, it is a weird spot for, 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 for both ends of it, I would imagine. 
I agree. And, you know, me and uh, Brian had a great conversation on the phone after that first day. You know, I told him that he should be okay with me starting there because that's just the way the game is played. And I said, I've been in your shoes. His, he didn't want me to fish there the first day, later in the day. And I said, dude, I gave it to you for half the day. I said, I need to cull some. And I actually caught two fish there in cold. And we talked about it. And I said, man, it just comes down to I'm providing for my family and you're providing for your family. And we've just got to work together the best we can to make sure we both can do that. And it's tough. I mean, I've been in, I've been in that situation where I'm struggling and I need a spot. I need it to pan out. I need to catch them in that event. And that's where he was coming from. I was coming from a little bit different scenario. I was in fourth in AOI. I needed to catch them there too. You know, I might not get this opportunity again. And that was just, you know, we, we worked it out on the sidelines and that's just the stuff that people don't see or hear about that, that goes on at elite tournaments um, I've had another scenario when we were at Champlain a couple of years ago, I was sharing water with Zaldane and he texted me. I think the first day I only had like 16 or 17 pounds. The next day I caught like 19. And then um, he texted me that night and was like, Hey man, I think the fish to win are there. Can you give me a little bit more space? And I said, absolutely. You know, that's just the stuff that people don't know about that goes on behind, you know, the scenes with us. And it, it, it definitely, has to happen or um, the scenario of guys fighting on the water occurs, you know, and, and no, that's not good for anybody. How often do you think that happens? Not the fighting on the water, but the brokering of like, is that a daily thing on the elite series? Not for you, but for like every day of competition, is there anglers balancing or is it just specific events that we go to that it happens just more? Yeah, it's every event. I mean, because you put, a hundred of us on the water, we're going to find the same places and we're going to be on top of each other um, constantly um, for the most part. So if, if nobody worked together, you would hear more about fighting going on. And I mean, that's just the nature of we're, we're competing. You know, we're, it's the weirdest sport. We can be friends off the water, um, go to barbecues, but whenever we blast off in the morning, we're trying to rip each other's throats out. But at the same time, we also have to have a grace about us that, that says, if we don't work together, neither one of us is going to do well. So, I mean, yeah, it happens at every event for sure. And everyone has different pressures on them too. I think that's the one thing nobody thinks of. Everybody's like, well, he is in the top six of this tournament. Well, you're in the top four for angler of the year at that point. And, and somebody else might roll in who is literally this close to being cut from the elite series. Right. So you, you know what I mean? Like they're not even chasing anything down except for their entire career, which if you put it in all of those, maybe it's even more important. You know what I mean? But it, I guess the working together and, and understanding that um, is, is what gets it through. Do you think one of the things that's floating around the world, and I think I think it's totally wrong, is um, it's almost impossible to qualify for the Elite Series, but it is really impossible to not to unqualify from the Elite Series. I think that's the biggest load of crap I've ever heard in my life. Do you agree? Well, what happened is we've had all this change from 2018 when the split yeah. occurred, and we had a fairly solid system leading up to that, that point. Yeah. I felt like our attrition rate um, and our cut rate 
versus what was coming into the Elite Series kind of matched up more. And then what happened after that split is we kept a lot of guys on and uh, because of the guarantee. Yeah. And when it came time for everything to balance out, we saw a great number of guys need to be cut and a few guys come in and it doesn't, it doesn't equal itself out. Um, so right now we're trying to, I guess, figure out a happy medium or a way to mitigate all that. What, what's right, man, I don't know. It's a performance-based sport. It, at the end of the day, um, that's the only way that you can, you know, establish yourself and stay. Um, what that number should or shouldn't be, I really don't know. Um, but I do feel like right now we are cutting way too many um, the way the way we have it right now. Um, I believe whenever I came on in 2016, the system was similar to – it might not be these exact numbers, but similar to this. If you remained in the top 70 or 75 in AOI – now, granted, we fished 109 guys, I think, yep. in my season. If you fished in the top 75 – um, you were safe. If you fell below that, then it went by career average. So you still had, you know, what's that, 20 or 30 places right there to work with. And you, we were still only bringing in 15 guys from the Opens and one from the Nation. So that's 16 spots. And then so the rest of those guys that fell below that 75th were hashed out by career AOI which I think was a really good system. So if you have a bad year, it goes back to your career average and you get to drop for, I think, one event for every five years you were on the Elite Series. So it really saved you, saved a good angler from having a bad season and getting booted. Now I feel like with what we're doing now, great anglers are going to get cut just because they've had one or two bad years. And, man, that's tough. And, and – um, some of my friends uh, that I, I talk to, you know, weekly are in that position. And, and you know, I think there's actually a petition going around to up. Is there really? I, yeah. Yeah. I actually signed it at the last event. It's a petition um, to fish instead of a 90 boat field, a 100 boat field next year. So, yeah, it's been going on. And I think when I signed it, it was up to like 40 signatures from the elites, current elites. So, I mean, we all understand that there's an issue and there's a problem. I mean, you look at guys um, like Jockamson and uh, Atkins and uh, Gleason. They had to have extraordinary seasons and out of the gate. They knew they did because the way that we're cutting guys this year is just on an average. So, and I believe it's only a three-year average or, or something like that. So, if you had a bad season or two bad seasons, you know you've got to really catch them this year to up that average just to stay. That's just a tough, tough pill to swallow, you know, right out of the gate. A lot yeah, of pressure. Yeah, a ton of pressure. And I also think that, man, it, it destroys. As soon as you get yourself in that situation, it's only very few Arms. that can fish their way out of it because – I mean, everything just has to go perfect. And, and as you, if you get a bad one, you're like, okay, now I need to make up for that in the next one. And it just, I mean, there's anglers that I've seen over the years where it just, I mean, it, 
you see the meltdown just because <laughs> of that pressure. And and I think I think it's unrealistic. It's easy for people in chat boards and and commenting on a podcast or whatever to say things. But you're not really in that life. Like, I don't care what you do for a living. If you sell cars, you deliver packages, you fix cars, you whatever your job is, you're a florist. It doesn't matter if you were put, anybody was put under that, you know, pressure. I think that they, you know what I mean? Like they said to me, if you screw up X amount of intros a year, I mean, all of a sudden, I think I'd start screwing up more intros because you'd just be focusing on not putting it in the ditch as opposed to driving straight and, and winning. Right. And another thing that sucks about it is you can't get booted out of the elites and go back to the opens and make a living and support your family. And I feel like we have enough anglers now to where we could support a something in between the opens and the elite series to where you're still paying the same amount of entry fee and you're fishing for a hundred grand and $10,000 checks and that's where you would go if you fell out of the Elite Series. That way you could at least support your family and at least fish for a living still. I know, you know, obviously that might be a logistical nightmare for bass, but and, and I get that. But I think we're getting closer to the time where we have enough anglers and enough um, support to, to, you know, maybe look at that as an avenue because – Right now, and that was, uh, you know, going back to 2018, you know, I was offered a chance to go with a lot of those guys. And that was yeah. one of the things that really, really made my decision easier. If that didn't work out and I had to go back and fish the opens and I couldn't qualify or I had, you know, one of those deals where I had one bad event each year and it kept me from qualifying, I'd have been done. My career would have been over. And that's a tough pill to swallow to be fishing the elite series and know I've got to catch them really good or I've got maybe one or two years in the opens and I'm going to have to go get a job because, you know, I can't support my family fishing the opens. So I feel like, you know, there, there possibly should be some thought into putting something in between the opens level and the elite level to where guys, you know, that fall out or guys that, even aren't ready for the elite series can move up and kind of fish that lifestyle and kind of get, you know, accustomed to paying that kind of entry fee and fishing for that kind of money. It would prepare them better for the elite series. Would you want to see the bulk of the qualifiers to the elite series to come from said circuit? If said circuit was ever made just simply because to answer your question, I mean, the best way to make sure somebody sticks around is have the best applicants come to the top. And I think the right. best way to do that is not three events ever. I don't think anybody will agree, even the people that qualified. I mean, I got through three and I made it. That's great. But even, I mean, to fish three events, pay for what it costs to fish three opens and qualify for the Elite Series, you have not even gone into a test. I mean, it, you know, it's it's not even comparable. It's all by, it's all by region, too. So yeah. You might have a, a great northern angler that fishes the northern opens and gets to the Elite Series, and we go down to – St. John's or Lake Okeechobee, and they're like, oh, no, what do I do? You know, it's uh, they're not tested enough. And um, I was a supporter of you needed to fish the whole Opens Trail. Yeah. Because, I mean, that gets you in, what, nine events, which is what an elite season is. Yeah. 
lower entry fee, but you have the travel and you have the different regions. That that's the key, the different regions to test who you know the best anglers are across the board, not just where you're from. Yeah, yeah, they, they got to be tested in all ways, geographically, financially, mentally, everything. Just be in a way as much as you guys are away. I mean, I don't know how you guys do it, but I, I do know that your rooming situation must make it somewhat easier. You room with obviously. Drew Cook and um, David Mullins, who ironically, I used to always say that Drew Cook was the worst loser on the Elite Series because, I mean, he gets uncomfortably grumpy when he doesn't catch. And you should, just yeah. to be clear, I'm not saying that you should be happy when you don't catch him. It's a competitive sport. Mm-hmm. Winning should never be something that you take easily. Yeah. So you should get grumpy. But Drew. Cook would get uncomfortably grumpy every time. I Like, you're like, I don't even know if I want to talk to this guy right now. But then when I said that to Mullins, Mullins is like, screw that. I am the grumpiest person when I don't catch him. So nobody would know better than you. Which one of them is grumpier when they don't catch him? I, I really think probably Mullins is. <laughs> I, I The thing about Cook is, you know, he has so much success coming in. And yeah. It's hard to, I don't know, it's hard to accept failure when you've had so much success and he didn't realize that, you know, and a lot of people don't realize fishing is a lot like Major League Baseball batting statistics. You're going to lose a lot more than you're going to win. And, you know, I've kind of talked to him about that and like, man, you know, you've got to really appreciate these times when they're good but understand bad times are coming. You know, yeah. You get slumps. It's just like anything else. You And um, he, he won that event at uh, Santee and he's missed a couple cuts here. And, and I think he's starting to understand, you know, it all comes full circle. You have good events and you have bad events. Sometimes we figure them out. Sometimes we don't. Sometimes we make all the right decisions and the uncontrol- uncontrollable variables in the sport are through the roof that, um, and that's what's different about this sport than any other sport is we're dealing with live fish, weather, and, you know, all these things that we cannot control. And you can do everything right 100% of the time, and it's still not going to go your right 100% of the time. So it's just something you're going to have to accept. If you, this is the career path that you want to choose, you're going to lose. No doubt about it. It's going to happen. You see what happened with Drew a few times. You know what I mean? I've seen that. I'm I, I, Right away, I think of Gussie last year. Gussie won an event, and his next few events, which were events that you would say would set up well for him, he didn't do well. You know what I mean? He ended up making the classic and everything. But do you think something happens when you win an event and, and it makes you kind of feel like, oh, I, I figured out the Rubik's Cube. I can win more of these now. Some, some say it's the winner's curse, but then you look at somebody like Christy, he doesn't look cursed. <laughs> so, I mean, I don't know, man. It's just uh, you never know when, when these wins are going to come, honestly. And uh, you just, you know, you keep your nose down and keep fighting, and then eventually they come. And there's – it's like you can do no wrong. It just happens. And – you know, the bad events, they kind of just happen too. And it's just part of it. It's, I don't know how to describe it other than, you know, you, you hope for the best and plan for the worst or plan for the best. And I mean, it's just, it's just one of those, those things you just deal with. 
You did you win the first FLW event? I know you won rookie of the year, but did you win the first FLW tour event you ever fished? I is did. That, yeah. How that, did that affect you? Like, did you just be like, but this is so much easier than I thought, guys. Get ready, because I am buying a mansion in about three days. <laughs> no, but I mean, honestly, that kind of got me going. And for the first, I think, three events, I was leading AOI or second or something. So I was like, holy crap, I'm out of the gate. You know, I've got a shot at, you know, all this. And yeah, I don't think I thought it was easy. I might have been so young and naive to take it a little bit for granted yeah um, but and looking back now i'm like man you know things could have went way different um and had they gone different i might not be in the position i am today but um i have to look back and be thankful for the way things went just from that standpoint that after that i had a couple tough years on flw where i didn't qualify for the force wood cup and uh, then I qualified for the elites, uh, had a really good year in 2016. I can't remember where I finished, like maybe sixth. And I One rookie of the year again. Yeah. And then um, I qualified for my first classic. And I think the next year I missed a classic and it sucked. I remember thinking about how bad it sucked again after I had the success I'm like, I'm not falling back in this rut like those last two years at FLW. And, so far, I've been able to, to make every classic since. So, been really fortunate. But yeah, it it definitely doesn't come that easy. It just is something you've got to be consistent. Um, you've got to offset a bad event with a good event, and uh, just you know, just keep grinding. Everybody talks about how hard it is to make the classic. How easy is it to not make the classic? I think people forget. Like literally, you look at people's years, and you're like. You're having a pretty good year. No, I didn't make the class. Like you look, it's, I'll let you answer the question rather than answer my own question. It's very easy. I mean, like I'll I, I use this for an example, you know, Schmidt, he, when we were talking, he's like, man, I've been struggling. I'm like, you haven't been struggling. I made a top 10 and you were there at uh, in Florida. <laughs> yeah. I was like the second event. So I know you, you've been having a good year, but then when I look back at the points, he really was. And yeah. I'm like, man, so, and it, a bomb, to me, it's a lot easier to fall than it is to climb. That's what I've noticed. You can fall very, very fast. And One very day. Easily, but it is hard to move up. And I don't know why that is. I don't know if it's because, well, I do know why it is. Those average finishes, and what I call an average finish is like just 20th, you know, to a check range doesn't do anything for you. If anything, it makes you fall a place or two. You've got to have top tens to move up. I've noticed that. And unless you have a top 10, it's not a successful event if you are, you know, trying to move up in the AOI race. Uh, that's the only way, in my opinion. And so I was sitting here thinking about it in these next three events, just to have a shot. I think I've got to have two top tens and one top 20 to have a shot. And that's like, really really you know good but really really hard at the same time so that's what i mean by it's it's way easier to fall than it is to climb yeah you you guys as as you mullins and uh drew cook room together uh do you guys work together at all you and cook work together i know does, that, does anybody work with mullins <laughs> yeah somewhat it's a it's a different dynamic that we um 
we run to. See, me and Cook will share everything from bedfish to offshore schools to, and we try to get our rotation plan, you know, according to what boat number we draw. So we're not fishing behind each other and stuff like that. And Mullins, he's a little bit more old school. He likes to do his own thing. And, and um, we share to an extent, I'll say. It's like, uh, um, and now when we get to a point where, you know, I think, that I'm not going to be fishing offshore any or, or whatever. I'll give him everything I've got. And same with him. If he thinks that he's not going to fish shallow, he'll give us everything he's got. But when it comes to, uh, when it gets down to it, I think he likes to kind of do his own thing and, you know, which is fine, totally fine. But as far as like patterns and you know baits and things like that, yeah, we share everything, all three of us. But um, at the end of the day, like in a practice, me and uh, Cooker, we we actually – he has all my dots and I have all his dots. And whenever one of us makes the cut one of us doesn't, we have each other's stuff to fall back on. Now, we might not hit it the first couple of days, um, but we have it. You know, it's just an option. Yeah. Do, do you think that's kind of the norm on the Elite Series now? Like there's a lot of teams, it seems, yeah. you know, that have come yeah. together. It is, and it really makes things uh, a lot more, I won't say easier, but it makes, it gives you more options, especially like on Lake Pickwick. Whenever I was running around and couldn't find anything to go stop on, you know, Cook marked some brim beds that um, he didn't know if there was any bass on them, but I went over there and fished those for a while and waited for something to open up instead of just wasting time, you know, or uh, just anything anytime that you have more options in a tournament is better um even if you don't use them if, if you've got those options it gives you a lot more peace and a lot it lets you slow down you're like i've got you know i've got my stuff i've got stuff that he found and i can kind of compare the two notes and and say hey this is something neither one of us has looked at i'll go check it out you know it, it just it's all part of the the process for us is, is Mullins kind of like the, the Osborne sister that nobody knows? Like, <laughs> if there was an Osborne, you know, Kelly Osborne, everybody knows from the show. But there was another sister that said, I don't want to be part of that show. And and Mullins kind of, I mean, that's kind of how he is with the cut line, right? Like, it's not his. Yeah, yeah when we started it, we we wanted him to be involved with it. And uh, we wanted to bring because we thought that would be way cool to have all three of us be involved in it. And I mean, honestly, it's a it's a financial burden. I mean, oh yeah, you have to pay a videographer to, to come out with us and video and, and cut and edit. And I mean, it's a substantial amount of money that we pay for this. And, and sometimes it gets sponsored, and sometimes it doesn't. Um, we're just kind of hoping it takes off. But um, it's got a lot of traction. I mean, from everybody that has reached out to us that likes to watch it, they they enjoy watching it and. When we were early on, we were like, Mullins, you know, do this with us. And he's like, no, I don't want any part of that. You got to do it. But that, that's just his mindset. That's just Mullins. You know, we, we've just grown to accept that's how he is. You know, for a lot of a – lot of, well, I won't say a lot of years, but for a while he didn't want to talk to you for, uh, for interviews and stuff. Socially we were cool, but interviews and stuff, he's like, yeah, we don't need to do that. Yeah. It, that's just his personality. I mean, that's just the way it is. So, I mean, we just like, okay, whatever. 
He he definitely is his own personality. The way and and here's what I like about him, and I will say this, and I think it's more so today than probably in years past. He owns it. I mean, he doesn't hide. He doesn't say no. I don't. He said, you know, he's like, well, yeah, no, I, I if I don't want to do that, I mean, he, he, uh, he doesn't, he doesn't try to be something different. You know what I mean? He is who he is, um, or maybe that's just because because of things like the cut line and because of me browbeating him and stuff like that, he's had no choice but to own it. Now, and going back to the, the info shared, it's not like we don't, you know, throw bones and him throw us bones. And, you know, that happens, obviously. Yeah. I can think back to events where he struggled. Uh, Santee Cooper, when we were there in the fall, he was struggling. And I'm like, hey, man, you can come up here in the swamp and fish around. You can get paid. And he made a top ten. And then at Harris Chain, behind that island where everybody was at, I visited and practiced. You know, I was going to do the sight fishing thing. And I'm like, you can get some bites in this grass. And he really explored it and figured it out. He made a top ten there. So, I mean, there are scenarios where our relationship is mutually beneficial no matter what extent we share it. Though. So, it definitely helps us all out in the long run. How did the three of you guys get together? Like, how did this whole rooming situation become a thing? Because well, I was just think Mullins watches black and white Andy Griffith shows and which he wakes does. up in the morning and goes fish. <laughs> Another that he puts his hood up and watches some more Andy Griffith and gun well, smoke he or whatever he else. His cell phone charger in the morning just to charge it for five or ten minutes to get him through the day. He comes <laughs> and gets your toothpaste out of your shower bag because he never brings toothpaste. It uses all of your shampoo and body wash. I mean, we basically have to take care of it. So, but out of all honesty, we uh, we roomed together um, prior to cook qualifying. I think we roomed together a couple years um, just because our personalities. We we are both outdoorsmen. We both love to hunt, and you know, he's not somebody that I hate. So we roomed together. So. And then Cook came along. He's from, you know, my region down here in northwest Florida. And, uh, you know, we fished against each other for, for many years down here. And I knew him and he knew me. And and when he was actually trying to qualify for the elites, I fished the opens. And we traveled together and roomed together in those opens. And we started our sharing then. And I told him, I said, man, once I got to know him, I started – honestly giving him everything that I would have in an open trying to help him get qualified. And I would just go fish something random and he ended up qualifying and it ended up working out really well, the, the info sharing there. And we just applied it to the elite series and we've both been really successful doing it. So. But on paper, you would think that you got, I mean, Mullins for you to share with Mullins on paper, to me, that makes sense. You know, Mullins is usually winding something and he might be, he's usually offshore a little bit, but I look at you, both Drews are very stereotypically similar in the way you fish. You're both sight fishermen and stuff. How does, how is that able to, you know, in sight fishing world, you would think that would be a disadvantage to have two of you um, doing the same thing looking for the same thing mm -hmm. well so like go back to santi cooper for example um we just split the lake up and he happened to be on the potato creek side of the lake and i went across and started looking for spawners during practice and he told me everything that he found over there and i'd found just enough 
over on the other side of the lake to where I thought I could do fairly well over there. Plus, that was a different scenario. All those big fish weren't locked down during practice. You know, we had that cold weather, and then we had, like, an off day. So a lot of things kind of changed. And he whacked them over there on day one, and I didn't on day one. I caught 17 pounds, but I should have had, like, 21 or 22. But that's one of those scenarios where neither one of us are going to hurt each other to the to the extent where – I'm going to go over there where he, he's got them and he's leading the event. Now I'm going to go right back where I was at and, and kind of stay away and give him a space. He would do the same for me, and that's just, that's just how we approach it. It's not – I know we're competing, but we're competing in a way that it doesn't affect each other. And when we share and, and work together, I know what fish he's going to. He knows where I'm going. And at some point, you know, he might see me, but it's – only out of necessity, you know, and it's, it's not to go over there and get in his, his business. But, um, and for that event, I never went over there. You know, I made the top 10 and even in the top 10, I was out of fish, like completely out of fish. <laughs> like I went down to the lower lake and just tried to make something happen, but I was not going to dare go over there where he was at and, you know, mess what he had going on. So that's just the way we, we think. Does anybody drive you on the Elite Series? Like, is there an angler outside of the two anglers we obviously talked about, Mullins and Cook? Is there an angler that, I mean, that's who I'm trying to beat today? Or, or is it literally <laughs> just you and the fish? I don't think so. I mean. Okay, is there an angler that it's sweeter to beat? Like, is there an angler like, I hope I finished ahead of so-and-so? <laughs> <laughs> no, nah, I mean, I just you're a liar. I, I, you're I wanna, lying, right? I want to beat them all. Lying. <laughs> I want to beat them all. <laughs> well, that's truthful, but I believe that there might be more to the story. I believe it's it's natural. I like anglers don't answer this crap, but every okay, baseball so player would be like, you know who I want to hit a home run against? This dude. Like they would have the, <laughs> they would be able to tell you the next day they play them. But in fishing, it's like. Oh, well, you know, we're friends and you are friends, but nobody I'd rather beat than some of my closest friends. <laughs> <laughs> nah, I, I mean, I want to beat them all, honestly. Um, but if I, gosh, if I had to pick one and I know <laughs> if I had to pick one, uh, it'd probably be, mm, it'd have to be Scott Martin. You like to beat Scott. I like to beat Scott Martin. It's a beautiful man. It's easy to like, easy to, like to beat Body's him. Body. He's got the hair. He's got the YouTube following. Yeah. I like to beat him. Yeah. yeah I, but see, I, I would take that as a compliment if I was Scott, yeah, Scott yeah, Martin. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Absolutely. And we shared water at Pickwick and talked. I mean, it's no, nothing against him. I just yeah. like <laughs> I, I think that was your first honest answer. I think we, it took us a while to get there, but I knew we'd get there. <laughs> who who frustrates you to compete against? Is there anyone that you like compete against? You're just like, he's putting half the work I do or however you look at it, but there's some people that like, or maybe it's Scott Martin again. Nah, no, nobody frustrates me. Everybody at this level. Not works. even John Cox. I mean, that dude fishes <laughs> for three hours and he constantly whoops people's. Dude, that, that is frustrating. He always finds them shallow and I love to catch them shallow. 
and it's just like he just goes out there, la 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 la, and just catches them. Like doesn't care, doesn't have a care in the world, and just puts it to us day in and day out. I, I don't get it. it. It has it has a lot to do with just his mindset and yeah. the way he flows. You know, I mean, he's just a natural a great natural fisherman. I mean, Aaron Martins was a great natural fisherman. I mean, he could just run down a lake and be like, I'm going to pull in here and catch five pounds. John Cox is the same way. And it, it is frustrating because guys like that, they work hard. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. They hard, but they, they seem like they just do it effortlessly. Yeah. Yeah. And it, I mean, I don't think what John Cox does would work for probably 60, 70% of the, guys in the field that they tried to do what he does you know what i mean because a lot of people would get exhausted forget what lake they're on or whatever but for him he, he, he doesn't even matter what lake he's on you know what i mean he literally just fishes i mean he's the only guy you didn't get to see this but at santee when you guys all took off he's the only person me and davy i were standing beside each other and we're like are we seeing what we're seeing he's the only person like just even through eagle you would think you would put your boat on pad and run to your first spot he just idled across the river, like literally, like I'm talking like this, just idled along and you see him talking to his camera person. And, and I'm like, I mean, just through ego, like I'm going to put the hammer down just to get over there. You would think, uh-huh. but I mean, it's amazing to see what he's able to do, but it is, it's all in between his ears. And I think if like, I honestly think, and I statistically haven't proved it, but I, if I spent the time looking at it, I bet you when he gets more pre-fish, it doesn't make him any better. You know, because he that gives him too much to think about. Well, that goes back to, you know, the thing I said about smallmouth. He never over overcomplicates anything. When he <laughs> catches them, he's catching them on a wacky rig general, on a spinning rod, or a swim jig, or maybe a popping frog. You know, something simple that he targets shallow water bass with. And, I mean, that's the way he just goes about his business. And it's just... It's almost like, man, I wish I could make things that simple. But, no, I've got to rig up 30 rods and, and, and try a little bit of shallow, a little bit of deep, a little bit of in-between, and, and it really gets you in more trouble than, than it's worth, honestly. Yeah. Yeah, last year I remember at the time when everybody was freaking about you can't compete unless you're forward-facing sonar. He had one in the backseat of his truck for three events and didn't put it on. And, and I asked him, I'm like, why not? And he's like, I don't want that thing messing with my head. And <laughs> everybody else that doesn't have it is letting it mess with their head. And this dude actually has it in the backseat of his car. And all he has to do is get it wired up. So it, it's pretty awesome to, to see. I think it's cool to see all the different things, elements that it takes to make successful pros. Like there's different things like what you guys are doing with the cut line, what Paul Nick's doing um, with, with his YouTube series, you know, and different people, but, I remember when Paul Nick started, I was like, dude, are you sure you want to do that? That's going to distract you. He won Angler of the Year that year. And I'm certain with him, he's one of those people that, like, the more cameras that are on him and the more questions he's got to answer, the better he performs. Where would you put yourself in that situation? Uh, I really think I do well just making it about fishing. And that's where our YouTube probably lacks. (laughs) Because I don't, I don't always show the camera the fish, and you know I'm just always, you know, I, I'm oblivious to the fact that cameras even running a lot of the time. So um, I don't think I feel any more or less pressure because of it. It's just something that 
uh, we started doing just because it feels like we kind of come to that age in tournament fishing where you've got to do something a little bit extra for your sponsors or what, what it may be. And, and it's also kind of cool to have to look back on. You know? Yeah. And uh, nobody – it's hard to, to tell a story without um, some type of YouTube or, or, you know, what we're doing with the cut line. And that's all we're trying to do. We're just trying to tell a story of, of what people don't see at an event. You know, they see – what bass covers and the, how the event actually goes, but they don't see the travel where we stay, you know, uh, how we break down the lakes in practice and, and share information and talk and our dialogue between us and Mullins has kind of been introduced into some of our episodes. Uh, but, you know, people don't see that. And we're just trying to tell a story at the end of the day and, uh, you know, kind of give people a different view of what we do for a living. So. Is there anything you've ever questioned showing or, or is there stuff that we've never seen that, that you were just like, yeah, that is great. We would have a huge hit on YouTube, but no. Absolutely. I mean, there's, there's stuff all the time that I wish that we could put in there because it would, it would probably go viral, but we would probably lose some sponsors or get bashed heavily for it. And that's just the society we live in. Everybody's a snowflake. It seems like these days, but um, but yeah, I mean, and it's, it sucks not to be able to, to be genuine and put, you know, some of that stuff in there because of just the worry about hurting somebody's feelings or whatever, but that's not, it's not what we're after, but it, yeah, definitely. There's definitely some stuff that the world never hears about or sees about. That we wish we could put in there. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, would you tell me about some of that stuff now or? Uh, I really can't say it now because otherwise it would be in the YouTube channel. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to outsmart you then. <laughs> uh, no, and I think it's, it is a sad situation, the world we're living in right now, where everybody, people say things, and the first thing that people look for watching it is what was wrong or what offended me. How and I and <laughs> I mean, you know what? My wife doesn't come hang out when my buddies come over and we hang out in the shop. She's not there all the time because she knows it gets crude or whatever, you know, but that's also like how guys are when they're together. And just so you know, ladies too can be crude when they're together, but it's people are too freaking offended nowadays. Well, our camera guy, he'll be shooting, you know, me and cook talking and he'll be like, that was so freaking awesome, but I cannot in any capacity use it. <laughs> That's the way you guys talk. <laughs> uh, the only video I've ever seen where I said that about a group of anglers was when uh, Matt Robertson, Corey, and Seth and them tried to do this little reality thing. And it was the only time in my life that I've watched something. I was like, yeah, you know, <laughs> I'm offended and I don't get offended by anything. <laughs> What's your favorite movie? Oh, favorite movie, Tombstone. That's not very shocking. That's right where I put So there's, there's the Mullins tie-in. Mm-hmm. All right. Any superstitions? Mm, if I'm catching them, I stop at the same gas station every morning and get the same exact thing. It's funny because fishermen will always say they're not superstitious, but I noticed that about all of them. Like, like. Yeah. If you were the well, first I used, I used to say I wasn't superstitious, 
superstitious and I'm really, that's not really superstitious, but I just, I keep the same routine. You know, I try to keep everything the same, keep everything flowing the same. That makes sense. What about Mullins and, and Cook? Are they weirdos or no? Mm. Cook is somewhat superstitious. Mullins, he just struggles to get to the ramp on time. <laughs> I mean, honestly, if I'm being on, and, and remember to bring his jersey or, you know, put a pack of baits in his boat. I mean, you know, we just try to take care of him best we can. Um. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, Mullins and Mullins went through some crap over the last number of years that nobody saw too. Like you guys must have seen a lot of his back issues where he couldn't mm-hmm. like literally walk to go to takeoff. Yeah, yeah. We we ca- we catch him in the mornings doing some yoga and stuff to try to try to loosen that up. I'm Does he do yoga? We call it yoga. He calls <laughs> it stretches. <laughs> <laughs> um. What's your ultimate goal in pro fishing? Uh, ultimate goal in pro fishing. I mean, honestly, just, uh, I don't know. That's a, that's a tough one. Um, I have several goals in, in pro fishing. I'd like to win a classic. I'd obviously like to win AOI. Um, but the biggest thing is I just want to, to be able to, to do this and have a long career supporting my family doing what I love. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, those accomplishments don't really measure the life you live getting to do this. I mean, and it's, it's a tough way to make a living. It's a grind, but, man, I love it. I do. Well, what's the toughest part about it, in your opinion? Well, um, used to be uh, just being away from family. Yeah. Um, and now, uh, my wife, Morgan, she brings the kids, um, when we have them, um, and she comes to every event. So that I don't struggle with anymore. And, um, I mean, obviously the financial side of it, it's extremely expensive to do this. And, you know, our, our, you know, pie of sponsor dollars is getting smaller by the day. And, um, you always kind of worry about, you know, what you're going to have from year to year to work with um, at, from a business standpoint. So I guess that's a little bit stressful. Um, but as far as, you know, catching them, man, it's just fishing. And it's going to have its ebbs and flows. And um, you just got to take the good with, when it's there and, you know, keep fighting through the bad. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a lifestyle that you don't choose. It chooses you. Is, is that the best part that you're just doing? I mean, because most people, when they become adults, they'll say things like, well, I got to do adult things and go to work and do that. But I, I honestly feel like, I mean, it, we all work on the road. Everybody works and, and, and worked hard to get where they are. But I also feel like we're a weird group of people that get to travel around the country and literally do what we would have wanted to do when we were, you know what I mean? Like when you're a kid, like you're on summer vacation, it's Tuesday. What do you want to do? Well, I'm just going to do this today. And and most of us fished and and now that's what they're doing today. Is, is that the best part about it? Yeah. I mean, I, I would say up until 2018, um, I still came home and I worked, I, you know, I was a longshoreman. I loaded and unloaded cargo ships. And I remember, 
coming home in between events or in the off season and working on those hot ships and thinking, gosh, this sucks. I just want to figure out a way to where I can just fish. And at the time, obviously I didn't have the backing to quit that full time and just fish and focus on fishing. And, and, uh, you know, fortunately I've, you know, made a, a, you know, good enough career to the point where now this is all I do. And I think that that's, everybody's dream that that sets out to be a professional fisherman is just to fish and um, I'm extremely blessed to be able to do it day in and day out just like you said it's a it we never feel like we're going to work we we always feel like we're we're going just going fishing and the derby is just part of it you know how much did just being able to focus on fishing how much did that change your, your career do you th- I mean obviously you got more time, but if you're not doing the right things with that more time, it, it can be wrong. But but you going through it, how do you? How much more effective do you think you are today than you well, were when you were doing both? I think the most successful people don't have a plan B, and I feel like it hindered me more. It it said, well, I don't have to catch them. I still got a job, a safety net, whatever. Whenever I quit working, and I said, this is what I'm going to do, and I'm going to make it. And I think I became more successful and I have a different approach. I don't fish for checks anymore. I don't back my boat in the water unless I'm trying to win. And I think that that translates into more success is not having a a safety net. Honestly. I agree with that. I agree. I mean, it's, it's weird because everybody tells you to chase dreams and do whatever, but then they, what's your safety net if it doesn't work? Well, if you went, you know, when you got your job, as a longshoreman, nobody said, well, what if this doesn't work out? What are you going to do? They, they just assumed you got the job and you're going to make it work out. And that's the exact same thing I see in fishing. Whenever you have your foot on both sides, I mean, you put one foot on a dock and one foot on a boat. Everybody knows how that ends. You end up in the splits and um, screwed up. So, Well, I'll tell you this. I mean, the, I don't know if I've ever told you this story. My first FLW tour event, um, you know, I had nothing. I just got out of college. I mean, I had like $5,000 to my name, like, and I want to say our deposits were like six grand and we had to pay uh, 3000 or 4000 right before each event before you went. So my business plan was to get a $10,000 credit card and pay my deposits and I had a, a couple thousand dollars left in the bank after, you know, I got in each event. I was just going to fish the first three and see how it went. If I fell on my face, I was just going to sell all my tackle and everything. And I was going to pay my credit card off and then start over, get me a small boat, and a couple rods and start from scratch. That was my plan. And went down there and won a hundred grand. I mean, it's, you almost have to you can't just test the water where you tell you, you just got to dive in sometimes. And I think that's the best advice I can give anybody want to do this. Yeah. You've got to, you know, do a controlled gamble. You can't do this. If you got a family, what I'm talking about, you can't do what I did if I'd had a family or anything like that. But at that point in my life, I was like, I've got to try, you know, I've got to try this. And that's, where I was at. So don't tell me that you got to have a bunch of money or a bunch of sponsors or anything to get started and do this because I didn't. And if anybody can do what I did, or if I did it, anybody can do it. So, um, I mean, that's just a little bit of 
of if it would have went the other way, you know, I might not be sitting here on this podcast with you, you know, but it did. It, it happened. So um, it can happen. Yeah, it, tr- it truly can. And do you think that helped you? Do you, I mean, knowing you only had three events to make it, did you fish different or, or just the way it all worked out? That it's you- just the way it all worked out. I wouldn't have fished any harder, I don't think. I mean, I, I mean, I guess you could say I, I was kind of backed into a corner. It was either going to work or it wasn't. So, I mean, I feel like it, that has to elevate you in some way to, to hit a different gear. Um, but it's also a lot of pressure. I just don't think – I don't think I had enough responsibilities at the time that I felt yeah. the pressure. I felt like if I lost everything, I could figure out how to start because I didn't lose much to begin with. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so, but, like, you know, if I – sitting here now, I couldn't put everything on the line. You know, I've got a family and and kids and and things like that. So, I mean, it's all about, you know, where you're at in life and, and, uh, you know, the timing. Yeah. Does it, do do the collegiate kids concern you coming up? Because if you look at how, I mean, I know you won your first ever event and all, but if you look at at most people, it takes a while to ramp up, but a lot of these collegiate anglers that we have coming really seem to be so well-rounded from the get-go. Do, do, does it concern you that there's just going to be more and more of them coming year after year? Well, so yes and no. I mean, I feel like with like my age class, the way the college started when I was in college, I couldn't fish opens or back then they were called ever start series. Yeah and fish college because they had a rule in place at the time that you couldn't pay over a $1,500 entry fee and fish the college stuff. Cause the college stuff was, was free at the time or something like that. So wow. I chose, now we have college kids winning a million dollars, which is also what is wrong with the fishing world. That <laughs> but I chose to go the Everstar opens route. And that's how I learned and came up. I mean, it's the same thing. You're fishing tournaments, you're competing, you're exposing yourself to different regions. And I mean, that's how you get sharp. So I wouldn't say that anything has changed. The avenue to get to where we are has changed a little bit. Um, and I think that there's more interest now than there was back then. Um, yeah. Yeah. With high school all the way up through college. It's crazy. It, it, it like how that has continued to explode is, is crazy, and I think it's one of the the coolest things in the sport. Um, but it's also cool to see that evolve and how quick. Like it happens in other sports. Like you see, at one time it literally named the sport. You know, it didn't have the same collegiate sport. Once it gets it, you know, you get more people serious about it. It's easier to tell your parents you got a dream if there's a path as opposed to I want to be that dude. Um, Right. You know, and that's kind of what everyone had to do before this. So I think it's a likely path and it and it makes sense to people. And that goes back to, you know, what I was saying earlier about the need for another tour in between the opens and the elites. I think we have a lot more folks pouring into fishing and we have, you know, if we had an, another avenue for them to go. It would just another home for those college anglers when they get done with college. Um, Cause you're going to lose a lot of those college guys if they can't get to the, elite. there's nowhere to go. There's nowhere to go. Exactly. 
Yeah, there has to there has to be a place. Okay, I got one last question for you, then I'm going to let you go because I was thinking about this and I wasn't even going to mention this, but you brought it up earlier in our conversation about how, you know, you had an opportunity to leave and go to the Pro Bass Tour, Bass Pro Tour, and uh, you stuck with the Elite Series. I remember that feeling the night before the St. John's River. What did it feel like to you? Because there was like a few months there where there was a group of us that were like, whether it be anglers or, or people that work for bass, we're all in. But you also had to feel, holy crap, I hope somebody shows up. Because you had heard through the media for months that, you know, these new guys aren't going to catch a bass. Nobody's going to show them way in. You know, there's going to be nobody at the way in. There's going to be. But that event for us working for Bass was just such a huge kind of sigh of relief. Did you feel any of that going into that event? So I'll be straight up. I felt like I felt like it was going to be easier for me to make a living that year. And just just from the standpoint, we had fewer guys. Yeah. Um, you know, some guys we didn't know of. Uh, a lot of them were new. Obviously, a lot of them were new. Um and then I was a little bit worried about our following, losing our following, um, you know, all the big names left and so on. And then the turning point was, I think, the day three weigh-in. When I rounded the corner and saw everybody there, man, it's giving me chills now thinking about it. Yeah. They showed up for us, not, not the names that left, not for anything. They showed up for us, and that meant a lot. And – it made me feel like I made the right decision then and there. And I will say that third day, I said, this is not going to be a cakewalk. You know, these guys, came, every one of them caught them. The new guys that you never heard of, the guys that came from FLW, everybody caught them. So, it, and it's not been easy since. So I was wrong about that, but I was right about my decision to stay. But at least you're man enough to admit that you were, that you thought that because you know, I get so tired of hearing people say, oh, no, no, I knew. No, of course you thought, like, I mean, anglers, that's how anglers think a lot of anglers. That's how people in competition think, you know, if the opportunity is easier. Yeah. You like that, you know, but but it didn't turn out to be that way. And, um, I mean, it, it's it's been a real lesson in life, really. You know what I mean? To For me, like for everybody, I think that, you know, Speaking of which, have you watched any of this live golf thing in PGA? What's happening there? Because it's so friggin' remarkably crazy. similar. The only difference is millions more dollars. Yeah. Involved. Yeah. And but <laughs> percentage wise, I will go this far to say like, yeah, it's millions more dollars. But percentage wise, those guys were making millions more before. So, you know yeah. what I mean? I, I think that like, but it was the same. It's the same thing over and over again. Somebody's like. Never mind history. Never mind the past. Come on over here. Come on. Look yeah. at, look at, yeah. <laughs> we'll see how it ends. I mean, I just, it's, it amazes me that it's, you know, like Man, Greg I, Norman is our boy Duckett. Or <laughs> I will say this. I, I have some golf buddies who follow golf, who live, breathe golf. And they say the same thing that was said about our little deal and that it won't last. And I'm not saying that it's not lasting, but I'm saying how many guys have came back home? And bottom line, I mean, it doesn't matter what sport. 
And I've said this to Wheeler, so I'll use Wheeler as the example because by far he's been the most dominant angler over there, I would say. How many more does Jacob Wheeler have to win until he gets tired of answering? How come he never won a classic? And and that's honestly, and, and that's, I think, what will happen there. You know, how many more of these tournaments do you have to win before you get tired of not winning some of these events? You know, and it, it's... I think history is history. And, and, and not to say that just because a company is the oldest, I mean, anglers and a golfers, pro athletes take an enormous risk. They should go where they think it's best for them. But, mm-hmm. but it, it, that watching that is so, so weird. Like it's so weirdly similar. The numbers are different. <laughs> Deja vu. Um, and, and my golf buddies that I've talked to about it, like they, they're now more interested in what happened with bass, like, because now they, they're putting all the, these different, you know, equations together. So it'll be interesting to watch, but um, thank you for your time and your honesty. I mean, it took us a while to put this together, but I'm glad we did. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad to do it. That's, you know, I've been wondering when I was going to get invited on this podcast. I mean, I've kind of felt shunned that it's taken. Did you? I, I did. I wanted you to feel that. I really was hoping you'd feel <laughs> shunned. Well, no, I wasn't going to ask you if I could be on See, your that's podcast. the problem. You arrogant angler won't just say to me, hey, I'd like to be on your podcast. <laughs> Anybody that's ever asked is guaranteed on. Like, guaranteed, <laughs> just so you know, I mean, my standards are incredibly low. <laughs> <laughs> but no, good. So now your your standards are low and it's taken this long to get on here. <laughs> well, it hasn't taken that long. This is like episode. I mean, it's taken a while. Okay, I'll give you that. Took a while, but um I don't know why it took so long. I'll tell you what it was. I was about to book you and then Drew Cook won, and I was like, oh, okay. uh, no, I don't know. I don't dude, honestly, uh, I don't have an excuse, but um well, we're here. We're here and it's done now and nobody wants to hear about the past. So let it go, dude. Let it go. Be more like John Cox. Be mellow. Just go shiner fishing. We'll do it. <laughs> one thing, one thing uh, I'll leave you with a funny one. And I, oh, I good. A question. You've been waiting. John Cox. You know, I live out here kind of in the country and I was driving home. This is, I'm just riding my tractor around mowing and I'm looking at these fields. And remember when he had the cornrows? Oh, yeah, yeah. Cox Rose. Why do they call them cornrows? They look more like peanut rows. I, did, I didn't name them. I, did, I didn't name them. I just encouraged at, him to get them. going down the road and you look at fields, uh-huh. you know, corn's really tall. But yeah. peanut rows are really low, just like. So they should like call them peanut top. rolls. Yeah. Why are they called cornrows and not peanut rows? I don't know. I don't know. Why is your driveway called a driveway when you park in it? And in Toronto, we have a parkway that you drive on. It's all these confusing Very good point. things, Very good confusing point. things. But I thought that the Cox Rose were spectacular. Number one, I mean, it literally started as just a challenge and it built and built and he freaking did it, which is amazing, which proves me that you could get John Cox to do anything. You need to talk him into doing it again as an extra little power to try to push him over the top in AOI. But his hair is not – he has to get the Raggedy Ann going. I mean, he grew, remember he grew it way out, yeah. and and then he dyed it to teach his kid that – like, who does that? I mean, dad of the year, your hair is just like mine. I'll dye mine to show you how bad yours would look. And he, and he did it. I mean, it's awesome. It's awesome. 
So peanut rose. That is that the whole story? I was you built up to this yeah, is a funny I mean, one to finish with. I'm just I'm like, man, just some of the crazy things that comes to my mind and these this off time in between. <laughs> I need to get back on the road and get back to fishing. Do you do you have any other crazy things you just cross your mind? Mm, how good sight fishermen are to spawn. If you are, I mean, does your ability, is your sight fishing ability, I mean, you're very good at spawning, clearly. Um, a lot yeah, of kids well, already and more on the way. actually jinxed me. I was on my honeymoon. Uh-huh. And we were on stage at Chickamauga, and you said, it is spawning season. <laughs> and then what do you know, I get home, we've got a, a baby boy on the <laughs> yeah, well, you're welcome. You know how many people I blessed you with that. <laughs> you, did. Um, you did. But no, I mean, if you look at the side fishermen that are, you know, really the, the ones who go out there and side fish, we're all great spawners. Good at spawning. We understand what females want, I guess. I don't know. I think all tournament anglers are good at spawning, to be honest. I mean, I think it's the time away from home. It's the long, long drives that are fueled by a liquid <laughs> inside your, not, not something you drink either. It, it's, it just lives in you. Sometimes it leaves. Wow. This has got really bad. It did. It, it did. did. Yeah, I wish we started here. See, now I feel like we should do a whole podcast like this. And if you would have brought this, we would have done this much sooner. So it's your fault that I didn't do this with you sooner. Yeah, I mean, I'm sorry. I just, just these weird thoughts. All right. You know, not, not fishing. I just, they just come to mind. Okay. Well, go fan out your bed a little bit. <laughs> Get ready because the baby's coming. <laughs> Drew Benton, thank you very much. Thanks, Marcia. You know, awkwardly and weirdly enough, I feel like that interview was just starting to go. I mean, the chat was really just, just, starting to break free um we'll have drew benton back on again actually what i want to do is i want to do well i'm not going to tell you what i want to do but i got something planned that it'll be very good and um it will involve drew benton um once again guys thank you thank you every single like every single subscription makes a big difference i mean i hate even mentioning it but, man, what you guys did this past week woke up a lot of people to look at this little channel and be like, wow. I mean, to add those kind of subscribers, it just doesn't happen in the short period that it has happened. And um, I am so, so thankful for it. So I hope everybody last week had a good Father's Day. And I hope uh, this week is summer solstice, the longest days our day of the year was just a day ago, so um, happy summer solstice, and it, I don't know what it's like in your part of the world. Let's do a roll call. I did that on FYI this week, and it's always good to find out where people are from. Um, let's try this. Tell me where you're from and what the weather is like on that day, kind of temperature, whatever, because uh, I, I feel like the entire country went from the spring that would never, ever end or just kind of get here to uh it is summer and uh it clearly is summer um in most of the places i've been but maybe that's because there's no tournaments right now um 
at least for the Elite Series. I know there's some other tournaments and some very, very important tournaments in the tournament world, but it's come to that time of the podcast. Like I said, it was just getting going with Drew, but uh, it's done with me once again. Sincerely, thank you. Thank you all for letting us um, hit such an amazing milestone. And all I got to say is we're just getting started. The more subscribers, the more likes we can get, the more we can do. And trust me, we have some incredible, incredible plans for this channel. Some some really, really cool stuff. And um, you got us a lot closer to it this week, but let's let's keep going. I mean, um, to steal a line from the great Pat McAfee, and if you do not watch it, best sports talk show out there right now, if you ask me, Pat McAfee show, huge PMS fan. Um, free Gump, just going to throw that out there. But but from his line, he'll always say, be a pal or tell, be a friend, tell a friend. Well, let's do that. Be Let's not just totally rip him off. We'll say, be a pal, tell a pal about our little channel and let's keep it growing. And I will see you guys week after week at the Awkwardly Honest Fishing Podcast that goes by my last name, which is Mercer. Dave Mercer out. How cheesy was that? That's so Brian Mercer out. Uh, I'm sorry. Save me from this legendary Mr. Bob Cobb. Take us home. Thanks for watching. Please like, comment, and subscribe. Because Bob Cobb of the Bassmasters told you to. You hear? <laughs>